0: and I do mean very brief recap of last week. We started last week with a question that I think is an important question. It may seem obvious to some of you, but it's an important question because how you answer this question determines the paradigm of your life and your faith as it relates to your finances. The question is, does God want us to be financially blessed and successful? So we all answered yes, and that would seem like the affirmative, you know, the, the way people would answer that if they're believers. But more than that, we want to know why. If God does want us to be blessed financially and successful, what are his motivations for wanting that? We listed three last week. Number one, he loves us and love gives One of the primary characteristics of love is that love gives. And we mentioned the most famous scripture in the Bible. God so loved the world. How much did he love the world? He so loved the world that he gave. And I want to remind you, God does not just love us. God is love and love gives. So love is his primary motivation for wanting us to be blessed and financially successful. Number two is second motivation. We are his children and he's a good father. You have to understand when you got saved, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, and turned your life over to him and began following his word as the lordship, as the rulership of your life, the scripture says not only did your soul get forgiven of your sins and your eternity was secure, but something else happened. The scripture says you were born again, born again into what? You were born again into a new family, the family of God. Romans 8, 15 says that we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So when you got saved, more than just your eternity was settled and more than just your sins were forgiven, you were adopted into the family of God. And in the family of God, God is the father. And as a father, he is a good provider. So the second motivation for him wanting to bless you and wanting you to be financially successful is he's a good father. And you are his child. And then the third and final motivation that he has uh, comes from Genesis 12, 2, where God told Abraham in the original covenant of faith, he said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great and then you're going to be a blessing. In other words, God wants his children to not only be blessed, but he wants them to be blessed enough that they can turn around and be a blessing in the earth. And you say, well, pastor, he was talking to Abraham. Well, Galatians 3 says, if you are in Jesus Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and an heir to that original covenant promise. So God wants you to be blessed. So... The next logical question, we talked this last week all the way through, is if God wants me to be blessed, if God loves me, if God's motivated to bless me, why in the world am I struggling financially? And so we talked about this first from the paradigm and the prism, the lens of salvation. Because if you can understand it about salvation, you can understand it about blessing. The Bible says in the epistles, uh, Peter writes that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, the scripture simply means God wants everybody to be saved. Again, quote it. I'll quote it again. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does it say there? Who did he love? He so loved the world, not certain people in it. He so loved the world and was so motivated by his love for the world and not wanting anyone to be lost that he sent his only begotten son. He sacrificed his only son so that nobody would have to be lost, okay? So this gracious God has made salvation available to everybody, and yet not everybody's going to be saved. Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject that he preached on and taught on. He talked about hell the most, money the second, incidentally. Because there are people that God loves, that God wants to be saved, that are going to split hell wide open and be there for eternity. Why? Because salvation has walls around it. And there's one gate. The gate to get inside the wall is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus called himself a gate in John 10. He said, I am the door. If you try to enter in any other kind of way, you're the same as a thief and a robber. Then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father. You can't get inside the gate unless you come through me. So as much as God loves and wants to save people and doesn't want anybody to go to hell, salvation has walls around it. And if you don't go through the gate, you ain't getting it. Okay. If you understand that about salvation, It's the same thing about blessing and financial provision from God. Blessing and financial provision from God has walls around it. And there's a gate. And the gate is obedience to Scripture's commandments concerning finances. Never confuse those two, incidentally. A lot of people think they are saved by obedience and blessed by faith. You got it mixed up. We're not saved by obedience because Paul said that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by your works, lest anyone should be able to boast. My obedience is correlated to my works, so I am not saved by how well I obeyed. I'm saved by how well Jesus obeyed. And because Jesus obeyed his assignment and the Father's commandments, and I believe in him, then I am the recipient of the obedience of Jesus. Okay? So, so your obedience does not save you. Your faith saves you. On the other flip, flip side of that, your faith doesn't bless you. Your obedience blesses you. Never confuse the two. So if the, if the gate to get inside the walls of the blessing of God, if that gate is obeying Scripture's commandments, wherever there's a commandment relating to finances, if I obey that, I go through that gate, there's not a better set of commandments than the Ten Commandments. So last week we looked at the original Ten Commandments and the fact that that each one of the original Ten Commandments has a corresponding financial commandment that if you follow these, you're going to go through the gate. If you follow these, you're going to be blessed. So, number one, the first commandment in the original, you should have no other gods before me. Look at the look at the commandment, financial commandment that corresponds. Put God first. Okay, you see that? The original Ten Commandments are on the left. The financial commandments are on the right of the screen. So, put God first. All right? In other words, the first financial decision you should make every week, every time you have income, if, I mean, some, some people get paid multiple times a week, and every time you have income, the first financial decision you should make should have to do with God and his kingdom and putting God first. Uh, next commandment, you shall not make idols. The financial commandment that corresponds is don't worship material things. You would be amazed at the people that worship Material things. Now, they may not sing to them and bow down to them, but the word worship just means worth-ship. When material things become worth more to you than the things of God, you are doing the same thing as bowing down and worshiping idols. Be careful with that. When God's worth, when his worth in your life is elevated to its proper place, material things lose their hold. They lose their shine on you. They lose their grip on you. It's not that you won't buy things, and it's not that you won't have things, but they won't drive you. You know, a lot of people own things that own them. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, The one that corresponds is don't use the name of the Lord selfishly. We talked about it's not wrong to pray for what you need or even pray for what you want. But your mouth will tell on your heart. And when all you pray about is material things and never spiritual things, when all of your prayer is focused on what you need and what you want and not your own repentance and asking God to lead you and guide you and teach you his way and asking God to expel the pride out of you and to to help you see where you're wrong, those kind of things. If your prayer is only materialistic, then you're taking God's name in vain, praying that way. So balance is the key. And then number four, uh, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The one that corresponds with this is be a good steward. The, The Sabbath commandment was all about stewardship, stewarding their time and stewarding their energy. God was telling them to trust him with one day. Uh, I, I know you could go to work and you could make money on this day, but refuse to do that. Set aside this one day for me, and if you do that, I'll make you more blessed with six days income than other people are with seven days income. It's all about stewardship, that fourth commandment. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The one that corresponds financially is teach your children. Because as, as you are processing finances in your life and as you're thinking about finances, talking about finances, dealing with finances, uh, realize it or not, you are a professor teaching a class to the children coming up behind you, even if they're older. And you're building and shaping paradigms for them, whether you know it or not. If you're a tither, you need to tell your children that you're a tither and tell them why. Oh, hallelujah. If you give offerings and sow seeds for things, you need to teach them that principle so that it'll be a part of the fabric of their belief system and understanding concerning finances. Uh, Number six, the sixth commandment. uh, Where am I at? You shall not murder or you shall not kill. And the one that corresponded with this was live on a budget. And you looked at me funny last week when I said live on a budget, and I put it with thou shalt not kill, but then I told you that when you fail to live on a budget, you kill your financial life, okay? When you fail to live on a budget, you kill your financial life. Bonus point about living on a budget, if you're a tither, now there's some people in this room, don't raise your hand if it's not you, I hate it when people lie in church, but there are... There are people in this room, you'll know this, and it'll bear witness with you. You'll be able to instantly recognize it. One of the just bonus benefits for living on a budget is it allows you to see in real time on paper the extravagant provision of God. Because have you ever budgeted and then look back on paper And it makes no sense how you were able to achieve what you achieved, to accomplish what you accomplished, to purchase what you purchased. You look back at the budget, and there wasn't no room for it. There wasn't no natural way. You start shaking your head. You don't know how you did that much with that little. And the budget gets to show you in real time how God is providing for you day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. So live on a budget. Ah, number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. The commandment that we put with that was live below your means. When people commit adultery, it's because they're saying, God, I am not content with what you gave me with the spouse you gave me. I'm not satisfied with it. I want to go provide for myself. I don't want to receive and take joy in what you gave me, I wanna be rebellious, I wanna be my own leader, my own God, and I wanna go take into my hands something that I've seen that I want. Well, you do the same thing financially when you live above the means that have been currently provided for you, okay? Uh, When you buy things you can't afford, you're living above and you're living outside of the realm of the provision that God has assigned to you at this stage. Now, we can believe for more. We can believe for increase. We should do those things. But we don't go and buy things we can't afford until the level of our provision changes and we can get our arms around that. So we live below our means. And then... Uh, number eight thou shalt not steal this was a real popular one that everyone stood up and started running around the church when I mentioned it and I'm just I'm scared to mention it now I don't want to lose the service I don't want pandemonium my people's feet got stepped on last week because people were shouting and running the aisles and it was crazy but this next one is thou shalt not steal and the commandment that goes with it is don't buy now and pay later see how powerful that was When you buy now and pay later, you're stealing from who? Your future self, all right? When you spend five years paying on a TV and a sofa uh, so you can watch the game in comfort, but when you add up the interest that you're paying on that credit card or that finance account, you'd have bought the thing three or four times over. You're stealing from yourself. God never gave you permission to steal from the future you. Your future belongs to God. Then, uh, then... I mentioned this last week with that point. Um, romans eight twenty four talks about hope that is seen is not hope. Why does someone hope for what they haven't seen? Or why does someone hope for what they have seen, that they have right in front of them? God hardwired you to hope, and there's a there's a, a supernatural principle. When you're standing in hope for something, you can't get it yet, but you're standing in hope. You're saving, you're being diligent, you're praying and your hope is being full filled. It's like if I had a picture of water and I was filling up a glass. When that glass gets full filled, because I've been standing in hope and pouring for so long, then I'm able to go and take possession of what I've been hoping for. There's a there's an endorphin release to your soul, to your spirit. There's a joy that comes. You walk out of there with that thing. You, you It was delayed gratification. You spent time. You were diligent with it. You saved for it. And now, nobody's going to be calling you for that thing or knocking on your door or demanding a payment because you took possession of it, and there's a release of joy. God intended, the scripture says he gives us all things to enjoy. God intended for you to enjoy your possessions, not hate them. And three years down the road, when you're still getting bills for that TV and couch, you are going to hate that stuff. But but on the other side of it, if you don't go into debt, if you're not paying high interest, and you you apply discipline to your life to how you deal with your possessions and how you acquire things, there's joy, there's a release of joy when you take possession of something. And so I mentioned last week, and I want to mention it again, America is the most in-debt society in the world. We have the most credit card debt, we have the most debt total in the world. We are also the most depressed in the world because we are not good at standing in hope until the hope is fulfilled and then taking possession. We want it now, and the problem with getting it now is it cuts hope out of the equation. The clinical definition of depression is a person who has lost hope. Well, I guess most of us have lost hope because we never stand in hope for anything. We want, we want the full relationship now, you know? It's like it's like we, we, we don't want to go through the paces of dating and take it slow and do it God's way. We want to move in together right now. Let's play house right now. You know, I met you two weeks ago. I think it'd be a good idea for you to just move yourself into my, let's just live together right now. Well, no wonder it puts a strain on things. There's no hope, okay? No hope was built up. You understand what I'm saying? No expectation was built up. Nothing was worked for. Nothing was stood for. Nothing was waited for. And so you, you, you go instantly to the end of the result and uh, there, there's, there's not a lot of hope in the relationship. And there ain't no condemnation if you did it wrong. God, God's grace is for people that do it wrong. God can cover everything. But I'm just saying it's a problem in a, a lot of relationships because the foundation of hope wasn't built because we didn't give it time. Same thing with our possessions. The foundation of hope wasn't built. So when we do take possession of stuff, the joy isn't there. that should be there. Don't buy now, pay later. All right. <clears throat> Number nine, be a good witness. This corresponds with the commandment of uh, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Your financial life is bearing witness. It is a testimony. If you're a person of faith, your financial life should be a testimony about the goodness, the kindness, the generosity, the discipline, the favor, the strength of your God. So be A good witness. And then uh, number 10, uh, don't covet. You shall not covet. Uh, the, The corresponding commandment is be content. Now, I told you last week, the Apostle Paul said, whatever state I am in, I have learned to be content contentment is a learned behavior. How do I learn that behavior, Pastor? Because I'm not content in my marriage, I'm not content in my finances, I'm not content in what I have, I'm not content in my job. How do I learn to be content? You gotta go back and apply all 10 of these. And as you apply these commandments, see this isn't shouting stuff this is application stuff this is you you don't you don't really work this in here you work this when you leave here you go back and you apply these things and as you apply each one of them you're teaching your heart actively every day to be content and being content breaks covetousness it's a powerful thing okay that's the recap now let's talk about today Principles of multiplication. God, I'm ready. God, I'm ready. ready. To see supernatural multiplication. You can multiply my finances. You can multiply my resources. You can multiply my clients. You can multiply my connections, but God, I'm ready for supernatural multiplication. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. He wouldn't have me preaching this unless he was about to send it to somebody's life. It's not for everybody, but somebody is about to walk in a manifestation of supernatural multiplication. I'm not talking about stuff from the outside coming in. I'm talking about what you have right now being supernaturally multiplied to a degree that blows your mind. You will say when you see it, this is not natural. This is supernatural multiplication. Elbow somebody and say supernatural. All right, we're gonna look at a couple of principles of supernatural multiplication. In this natural world, pertaining to your finances, in this natural world, your finances can be added to, subtracted from, or divided. You know, if you get a divorce, that's what happens, they just divide it, stay married. Your finances can either be in this natural world. Here's all that can happen. You can be added to, subtracted from, or divided. Only God can take what you have. Oh, hallelujah. With with no other input, with no other extra help, only God can take what you already have and multiply it supernaturally. Amen. Supernatural multiplication is actually God's design and desire for the financial lives of his children. God wants you to live in supernatural multiplication. I like saying it. did not that sound good? It's just a good supernatural multiplication. All right. Luke 9, let's look at verses 12 through 14. We're going to set this up real quick. Luke 9, 12 through 14. When the day began to wear away, the 12 came to him and said, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go buy food for all of these people. For there were about... 5,000 men, and he said, make them sit down in groups of 50. First of all, let me deal with this. It's a very small point, but I think it's significant to the heart of God, and to the character of God. In your Bible, most likely, if you have a paper Bible, or even if you have a Bible like I have on an iPad, there's these little headings above uh, parables and, and stories and chapters in the Bible, and they name the heading. If you read commentaries or do any studies, it's the same kind of thing. They named the heading. And so in all of theology class and, and Bible college and in all of the Bibles and in all of the commentaries, this miracle is called the feeding of the 5,000, and it's a lie, okay? There were not 5,000 that were fed, okay? In antiquity, um, only there, it was a misogynistic society, History has not always been kind to women. In antiquity, women couldn't vote. It wasn't right, but it's the way it was. And women didn't count as much in the society, okay? And children didn't count hardly at all in the society. And so when they were taking a census or when they were counting crowds, they only counted the men. Um, and so this same are it's not a parable, this really happened. This same story, rather, is recorded in Matthew 14, 21. Go there real quick, Matthew 14, 21. And j- just to tell you why it's the same story, all of the Gospels share a lot of the same stories, they just share them from a different perspective. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John really are all talking about the same thing from different unique perspectives, and each one of them add different details. But this story in Matthew says those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, I just wanted to throw that in there. Back to Luke 9. So, so it's important to realize it's fine if you want to say the feeding of the 5,000. Just understand he's talking 5,000 families. Okay? In antiquity, this, this is... This is ancient Palestine here, okay? In antiquity, just on average, you know, there, uh, a husband and wife would have five to eight kids. You know, no prophylactics. <laughs> five to eight kids. So for every, every man, there's a woman and five to eight kids. But just, just for round numbers sake, let's say for every man, there was one woman and two children. Four people. Well, that means that the the number of people that would have eaten here would have been 20,000 people. 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now, it's a small point, but I wanted to bring it out. Because the people that were counting didn't count the women and children, but the one who was providing the blessing did count for women and children and, and, and the small point is God's blessing isn't just for you God wants his blessing to flow to your whole family okay Jesus wasn't gonna cook up a blessing for 5,000 men and leave everybody else out he said if, if I'm going to send provision if I'm going to send a blessing I'm gonna do it for the whole family 5,000 families were Fed. Then Luke 9 14 through 17. Let's keep looking at it. There were 5,000 men. He said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, he made them all sit down. He took five loaves, of the two fish, looking up to heaven. He blessed. He blessed. Shout it. He blessed. Come on, shout it with more force. He blessed. He blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And 12 baskets, 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. Let me deal with the 12 baskets because a lot of people always ask about it. I've studied it through pretty thoroughly. I've preached this text several times, probably 100 times in my ministry. And a lot of people have written in the commentaries, a lot of people have preached, a lot of people have researched, what is it about the 12 baskets? There's four common things that normally get brought up. I just want to list them so the next time you're going through this, you can see it and you can kind of figure out what you think about it. The, the first kind of reason for the 12 baskets is so that, you know, each disciple could have a little doggy bag to take with them, you know? The next is Jesus was proving to the disciples and everyone else that he was more than enough. That's pretty good too. The next, the, the third one, and I didn't realize this till I studied it out. This miracle was performed in a region that was named the region of 12. Okay. So it could have been that Jesus made the provisions go so far to fill up 12 baskets as an ode to the region that they were in. 12 was an important number to Jesus. He had 12 disciples, okay? There's 12 elders. There's 12 established uh, places in the scripture where Jesus performed significant miracles. So it, it could have been that. And then finally, a reminder, he could have made 12 baskets of leftovers as a reminder for the disciples because right after this, Jesus tells the disciples to take those 12 baskets and put them in a boat. And they're going to the other side of the sea. Okay. While they were on that trip, a storm arose and all the disciples thought they were going to die. And it could have been, it has been said, that Jesus wanted them to take the leftovers on the boat with them so that when they encountered the next problem, the storm, they could look back at the evidence of the last miracle he had just performed when they had a problem and be encouraged, hey, if Jesus could do that, then surely he can do this. Okay, Could have been any of those four. The point is is that Jesus provided more than was needed, and he did it on purpose. If God's provision ever shows up in the scripture, if you find it anywhere and you read about it, you will always find this characteristic. God never provides enough. He always provides. If he's going to get involved with it, it will be more than enough. If you have a need today and the God of heaven actually answers your prayer and gets involved with the need you have, I guarantee you when he gets involved, he won't give you enough. He will give you more than enough. All right, a couple of minutes left. Let's consider this text. We've already been through the text verse by verse. Now let's consider it practically. I want you to pretend that you are one of the disciples, okay? Which one are you? <clears throat> you Judas or, you know, Bartholomew or Thomas or Nathaniel or Philip or James or John, you know Peter, who are you? You know, who are you? Okay. I heard a lot of Peter. Peter's very famous. So let's just go with Peter. So you're one of the 12 disciples and you've devoted your life to this man claiming to be the Messiah. And you've been going through different towns and villages, ministering to people. And most of your events, your ministry events have been small. In fact, you have seen Jesus heal a few people, but after he heals them, he tells them, listen, don't tell anybody about this. And you're frustrated because you're giving your life as a disciple to support this ministry, and you want this ministry to get off the ground. You want it to have some significance. You want people to know how powerful Jesus is. You don't want Jesus to be the best-kept secret in the world. I hate it when people say that to me. People always come to me, you are the best-kept secret in San Antonio. I want to slap them upside their head. But anyway... But anyway, and let me just say with that point, my ambition for growth is limited to the ears my voice has been assigned to. I don't want to preach to pastor or lead nobody that God hasn't assigned my voice to their spiritual ear. But anyway. Peter's sick of hearing the disciples, they're sick of hearing Jesus, best kept secret. And and they're they're aching for significance, because when you're doing something and giving your whole life to it, you ache for significance. So finally, the largest crowd Jesus has ever stood in front of, 5,000 men, plus women and children, has gathered. And the disciples are stoked. Their need to be recognized as a significant ministry has been fulfilled. They are just absolute. This is the biggest thing they've ever done. They can't wait for it to get started. And they start an early morning service, kind of like how we started a service this morning. Okay? And the Bible says that Jesus preached and he taught the people many things. And I'm sure the service, you know, lasted kind of long. And then Jesus did a prayer line. And so it was, it was, it started early morning. It's about to be noon. And Jesus is in the prayer line, and the disciples, they're kind of, Elbowing each other, man, this has been awesome. You know, service is about to close. Uh, the organ players playing I surrender all. Everybody's getting ready to go and leave. And the disciples are saying, man, this was awesome. Can't wait to go get something to eat and go just bask in this wonderful day. And then after the prayer line, instead of closing the service, Jesus starts teaching again. It's almost noon, Peter. Is he, is he doing another message? So noon turns into afternoon. Afternoon turns into evening. And he ain't even showing any signs of stopping. And this, this is, is borne out in the text. Luke nine twelve says, when the day began to wear away. You see that on the screen? When the day began to wear away. You know what that means in the Greek? In the Greek, it means when the day began to wear away. So, while Jesus is preaching, and that's the inference in the text and the commentaries. While he's preaching to at least 20,000 people, the disciples start having a side meeting. Look. This has been great, but it's 6 o'clock. We started at 8. Uh, if I don't eat something right now, I'm going to die. I'm literally just going to fall over here and die. How much longer do you think he's going to go? I'm, hung- I'm hungry too, you know, and, 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 then, and then Peter pipes up and says, Hey, that's a good idea. If we're hungry. I bet those people are hungry. And you know, Jesus, he he probably won't really care if we're hungry. But if we go up to him and tell him the people are hungry. (laughs) He loves those people. He seems to really care about those people. If we go up and tell him the people are hungry, he'll wrap it up. (laughs) So to give you a sense of how bad this situation was with the disciples how long this service had gone, how intense it was, these jokers go and interrupt Jesus while he's preaching in front of 20,000 people. You know, one of them was elected to do it. We're going to go with Peter since he's the disciple most of you named. Peter, Peter. you know, you imagine him just walking up, you know, looking over at 20,000? Excuse me! Just one second. Excuse me! And he turns... To Jesus says, Jesus, wow, great teaching today. It's been amazing. I love how you took a whole series of messages and packed it all into one day, back to back to back. That was brilliant. Got tons of notes. Can't wait to really start applying and working this stuff out. Here's the thing. Me and the other disciples were talking, and we feel like the people are really hungry now as for me i could go the rest of the night and it into tomorrow i've just i'm just drinking this anointing in. it's amazing you know you're you're just wow you're on something today but i don't know how much more the people can you know they're not as mature as we are and hadn't hadn't been around you as long and you know they're 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 young in their faith and and we're worried that 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 they're going to get too hungry and and everything's about to close. And, and Lord, uh, maybe, maybe because of the people, you could wrap it up. Okay. So Jesus, he looks back at him and says, oh, you're worried about the people. You're worried about the people? Oh, you should have said something. You give them something to eat. I got so tickled when I read that, because my, my staff has gotten, has gotten concerned about bringing certain problems to me, because they know if they bring the problem to me, I'll smile real big, and I'll say, you fix it, you know? But he puts it right back on the disciples. Oh, oh, you're worried about the people? Great. You go give them something. So Peter has to walk back to the group. And you know how when you're in a group and you elect someone from the group to go speak for the group and then you see them coming back, you're, you're itching, you're anxious. You want to know, did you tell them like we told you, like we decided to tell them? And, and Peter walks back up. Peter, did you tell them about the people, how the people are hungry? Yep. Said it just like that. What did he say? He said for us to give them something to eat. I can imagine in my mind at this point, the, the mood here isn't faith. Understand this. This is important. The mood of this text early on is not faith. The mood of the text is frustration. Okay? Learn when to quit this message. Just shut the thing down. It's frustration. Okay? So it was out of frustration, I believe, that this little boy was walking by with a sack of lunch and Peter just snatches it, you know, just takes it from him. Give me that. And, 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 and the inference in the text is all sarcasm. Oh, you want us to go give him something to eat? Go back and show Jesus that all we have is five loaves and two fish. Not brought to Jesus in faith, brought to Jesus in sarcasm, Okay. Oh, you want us to feed 20,000 people? This is all we got. Yeah. Close the message. Shut it down. Let's come back tomorrow. Send everybody away. We can go get something to eat. This is, this is all we've got. Everybody say all we've got. All we got. And the reason they brought that to him is it does not make sense. Listen to me. It does not make sense to try to feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish tithing giving offerings and sowing seed does not make sense it doesn't make natural sense because it is a supernatural principle okay It does not make natural sense. Stop trying to make it make natural sense. It is a supernatural principle. Doing finances God's way doesn't make sense. But it works because it is a supernatural principle. And so they said, Lord, all we have is two fish, five loaves. Jesus said, oh, oh, wait a second. You got, you got... Two fish, you got five loaves. That's all you've got? That'll be fine. Help them sit down in companies of 50. Okay? And so the disciples go back and start to go through the crowd and organize the crowd in, in groups of 50. Now, at this point, as they're organizing them in groups, they probably remembered, because every Jewish boy, in order to go through bar Mitzvah. Had to memorize a certain amount of the Old Testament, and First and Second Kings were included in that list of memorization. So these twelve disciples, all being Jewish, all having gone through bar mitzvah, probably remembered that little story I read you in Second Kings about how when that man from Shalisha brought his tithe, his barley loaves to the prophet that the prophet multiplied the whole loaves until they had more than 100. They started with 20, and they had more than 100. So the disciples probably thought, oh, my God, he's really going to do this. He's going to multiply the meal. And I bet you that Peter ran up and was like, multiply mine first. You know, we're going to see something today, you know. Thinking that Jesus would take five loaves in one hand and another five in the other hand, you know, thinking it was going to work like that. But Jesus doesn't perform this miracle that way. He comes up, you know, I just imagine Peter standing there. He's got the, he's got a piece of bread and he's got, he's got the fish and he, he gives it to just go on and multiply it, go on and bless it. We're about to see something and Jesus takes it and he lifts it up to heaven and he blesses it. And then he breaks it in half and hands Peter half of what Jesus had received in the first place. Okay? Peter starts off with a whole roll and a whole piece of fish, and Jesus hands him back half and says, Now it's blessed. Go give it to the people. You done praying? You want to pray again? This is less than I started with. I didn't have enough to start with. Now I got less than I had. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. I blessed it. Go and give it away to the people. Now, there's a couple of things I want to draw to your attention. Point number one, it has to be blessed by Jesus before it can multiply. In the story, the meal did not multiply in Jesus' hands, in the Master's hands. This wasn't like it happened with Elisha and 2 Kings. The meal did not multiply in Jesus' hands, it multiplied in the disciples' hands. As they were giving it away. Okay. So it has to be blessed by Jesus. Before it can multiply. When you bring the first 10% of your income. Every time you receive income. When you bring the first 10% to the house of God. Jesus blesses it in his hands. Hebrews 7, 8 teaches us this. That even though we bring our tithes to an earthly institution. Where a mortal pastor or a mortal priest, in other words, somebody that's going to die, somebody that's natural, somebody that's not supernatural like me, is going to lead the organization and receive the tithe for the organization to continue. Even though you're doing that and it's an earthly thing while you're bringing it, in heaven, Jesus receives it. It's there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Every time you bring the first 10% to the church, you are putting the first 10% of your income in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus has to bless it first in order for it to multiply. I want you to, uh, to think about this. I know people who are generous in their heart. They give a little here, they give a little there, but they, they don't consistently bring the first 10% of their income to Jesus. Unless you bring the first 10% to Jesus and he blesses it first, then remaining 90% can't be multiplied. Okay? So I mean you're good in your heart and you're doing you're doing something good, but but you're not working the system the way it was meant to be worked. Unless he blesses it first. Imagine if the disciples would have taken this meal and tried to go hand it out before Jesus would have blessed it. There have been 19,999 hungry people because it was only enough for one person to eat. He had to bless it first in order for the rest of it to be multiplied. You've got to bring the tithe to God first in order for the 90% to be qualified to be multiplied. Okay? And then the, the second thing, it's very simple. The second thing I want you to notice the multiplication happened during the process. Of giving it away when did the meal multiply did it multiply in Jesus hands no it was blessed and broken in Jesus hands it multiplied during the process of it being given away imagine if the disciples would have got taken this meal to Jesus and he would have blessed it and then the disciples would have gathered around and just ate it all up there wouldn't have been any more food left Because it didn't multiply until they took it and began to give it away. And listen to me. The more they gave it away, the more it multiplied. Again, I told you, this stuff doesn't make natural sense. But you'd be shocked if you work it, it will work. Because it is supernatural multiplication. When you put it in Jesus' hands first... And then you make the decision to give away, to give away, to give away. That is when supernatural multiplication begins to explode and erupt in your life. Give the Lord a hand praise and stand to your feet. I want you, while you're standing, if you have notes or you have a phone or something, you can jot down real quick. I want you... To do something for me, I want you to agree with me. And some of you don't even know me uh, very well. Let's fix that next week at Bless Fest. But I want you to, I want you to commit to do this. I want you to invite three people to church with you next Sunday to Bless Fest. Okay? I want you to invite three people. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go pick them up. You don't have to, you know, bribe them to be here. Just invite them. Invite three people to church. Fest, It's going to be a blast. I'm not going to preach long, I promise. We're going to have a lot of fun stuff outside, free food for everybody, tons of stuff for kids. Um, It's going to be a great atmosphere, and we're going to be blessing a lot of people. And um, I really want uh, the broader constituency of our community, which is the people that we're connected to, to get to witness that and see that and I think they'll be very blessed by it so I want you to invite three people if you invite three maybe one will come okay if every one of you invite three maybe one will come so do that do that for me would you do that for me also um, we've only got like about 25 emails submitting uh, asking for the car and asking for rent relief this is the last week. If you've been sitting on your on your send button, you need to send those emails in. ChristianWorldSA. ChristianWorldSA at gmail.com. Send us your story and nominate either yourself or someone else. Because I want somebody driving that car away. And I want somebody uh, having that rent relief uh, applied to their life. So make sure you send those in. And uh, it will be a blessing. Amen? Amen. I want to do something. Uh, Real quick, and this is, I'm going to do a giving challenge here in a minute, but what I'm about to say is for you, whether you give or not, some of you have a heart to give and you just can't for whatever reason, I get it. I still want to do this for you, but I, according to the book of James, which talks about the doctrine of laying on of hands, that church leadership is endowed with an authority and a power by God to pray for the sick, to pray for certain ailments, to pray for certain problems, and also to release blessing. Uh, the ironic, not ironic, but the Aaronic blessing in the Old Testament conveys the same thing, that God has given church leadership authority from heaven to bless and apply blessing. I feel in my spirit, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. You don't have to fall out and go crazy and roll on the floor. I feel in my spirit to speak financial blessing and to apply a financial blessing over your head and so first of all for the people who are giving and who are waiting on a giving challenge the, this is what I would like to challenge you to do I'd like for you to get as close to a hundred and twenty dollar seed as you can and we're sowing for supernatural multiplication now when I do when I do challenges like like this and we've been in a financial zone and there's an anointing here um, there's, there's a lot of stories that come in, a lot of testimonies, a lot of reports that come in. Make sure you do that because there will be reports of miracles financially breaking out as a result of this seed. $120 seed. $120 seed for those of you that feel led to do it or as close as you can get if you want to give something, if you want to give something. Now, if you want to give something and you're going to give something and If you're here and you can't give, but you want me to pray blessing, pray blessing over your life. I want you to come to the front as soon as you have your seed, or you can just come to the front now. They're gonna bring some buckets up here. I want you to come and I want you to stand because we want to lay hands on every person that desires it and speak financial blessing over your life. Father, as the people are giving, And as we were about to follow the instruction of your word concerning the laying on of hands, impartation of faith, impartation of blessing, we ask now that by the power of your spirit, you move in this sanctuary. We ask by the power of your spirit that you begin to lead your people out of debt, out of lack, out of loss, that you begin to inform their financial decisions, that you begin to strengthen them in every area of their financial life in the name of jesus christ father i know the power is not in my hands i know the power is in my obedience to the scripture and father i ask as we pray together as we believe together i ask for the supernatural presence of the holy spirit to release your blessing to release your increase to release your power over this congregation as it pertains to their finances in the name of Jesus Christ and Lord, we thank you for it.